Ten Commandments. Probably familiar, probably have heard it before. What does this have to do with our series, and what does this have to do with the fact that all of this series were pointing to Jesus? Let me ask you this question this morning. How many times have you ever thought this? I hate people telling me what to do. Don't raise your hand, but you ever thought that before? Or have you ever thought, I don't like it when people tell me what to do. I just want to learn on my own, even if I have to learn the hard way by making mistakes. <laughs> Actually, the idea of hating being told what to do is as old as human history. Adam and Eve didn't really like it when God told them what to do. And so they took matters into their own hands, and everything became a mess after that. And if you've been reading through Genesis and Exodus during this series, um, you will see so far that people have made mess after mess after mess over and over and over again because they decided to do things their way. When they had a way, another way to do it, they said, I don't want God or anyone else telling me what to do. I want to do it my way. So because of all that mess, what God's going to do, and what we saw last week, is that God is going to call a people out from amongst all the peoples of the world, and he's going to set those people apart to, to bless the world and to bless the nations through those people. So he's going to call these people out, and he's going to set them apart, and his whole plan is to bless the world through them. And in Exodus 20, we're going to see what that will look like. Um, sometimes when you look at the Ten Commandments and you hear, thou shalt not, but it's actually, thou shalt not because thou shalt do this. Thou should do something else. And so it's actually just the opposite from what we see sometimes. It's God saying, this is my character. This is what I am like. And if you're going to be in right relationship with me and right relationship with other people, you're going to do it the way that I say to do it. And so the Ten Commandments really are... God's showing us his character, and God's showing us who he, who he is, and God's saying to the people of Israel, this is how you'll bless the nations. This is how you're going to be a blessing to the whole world, is if you relate to me this way, and if you relate to one another in this way. Now, what's going to happen is ultimately, we're going to see that we can't keep these commandments. Even though God has designed them to bring peace and harmony in our relationships, we still have a nature that will want to do things our way. We will see what God will say here today, and we'll say, yeah, okay, but sometimes no. <laughs> That's what we do, right? Um, you know, usually there, there are sins that happen in my life that sometimes I, I don't even realize that it's happening, right? But most of my sin, and I would suspect most of your sin, are things that you know. You just choose to do them different. I know, I've been in the ministry for a long time, so I pretty much know what God says. Sometimes I don't want to do what God says. I want to do what I want to do. And when that happens, what do you suppose happens to everybody around me? It brings disharmony inside of me because it brings disharmony with God and it usually affects my relationships with other people. So what, Jesus, what God is going to do here in the Ten Commandments is give us a picture of his character and, and what he is like and how he wants us to relate to one another. But what we're going to have to see through the Ten Commandments is that we can't keep them and we will fail. And this is where we're going to see Jesus in Exodus. This is where we're going to see the need for Jesus in the book of Exodus. God is going to use the law as a mirror. And it's going to help us to see our sin. He's going to use the law to show us his nature and character. But he's going to show us 
his beauty and the beauty of his design, and the problem with us is that we go against his design. And when we go against his design, we call it sin, and that's when we're going to need a Savior. And so that's my hope today as we unpack this, that you're going to see God's character and nature in the Ten Commandments, but you're going to see your need for a Savior, and then the good news that he provides that Savior for us. So here we go. Let's just dive in. We're going to take a quick overview of each of the commandments and just try to look at them quickly. And then my hope is to tie that all together, pointing us to the New Testament to see how Jesus fits in all of this. So this is how it starts out. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God just starts out by reminding them, I've saved you. This is kind of an important piece that theologians note that before he gives them the commandments, He tells them, I've already saved you. I've pulled you out from the land of Egypt. I have delivered you. I'm the Lord. I saved you from slavery, and I brought you out from that. Now I'm going to give you the commands about how you should live and be in right relationship with me and right relationship with one another. And so he just starts out, I'm the Lord. I saved you. Now because of that, you shall have no other gods before me. Exclusive nature of who he is. He he says, listen, I'm God. There is no other God. There is no other who has power and might and glory like I do. And I am not in the business of sharing that power and glory and all of that worship that's supposed to come my direction. I don't share that with anyone else because I am the Lord. This is what he says in Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Why God gives us as a commandment to to the Israelites is because he's saying, listen, you shouldn't have any other gods before you. That's the negative. The positive, because I am God. I am the God. Don't don't mix me up with with the culture around you that that talks about other kinds of gods. That's what was happening in, in their culture in the world around them. They were people who worshiped multiple gods. He's saying, I am the only one. So might sound negative, you shall have no other gods before me, but we're hearing the character of God. He says, I am the Lord, and I, I don't share my glory with anyone else. And I'm allowing you, Israel, and I'm allowing you, Christian, to come into my presence and to know me and to have no other gods before you but just me because I'm the real and living God. Isn't it amazing when you think about it? You and I get to know the true and real living God. There is a God who made all things. There is a God who holds it all together, and he is saying, I'm allowing you to know me. I just am asking that you would have no other gods before me. And so that's the first thing he says to Israel. I've saved you out of a land of slavery, and this is how you have a right relationship with me, is to have no other gods before me, to to recognize who I am and my power and glory and might and submit to that and come under that and say, wow, what a privilege it is, instead of, oh boy, I shouldn't have any other gods before, before God. No, it's the privilege of walking into the presence of the Almighty God and him inviting you and I into that presence. And he's inviting Israel. And he says, Israel, how you're going to bless the nations is if you have no other gods before you. And if you keep me at the top. And then he says this, this is how this will look now. He says, so have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. So nothing from, the, from the, the heavens, nothing from the stars and the universe. 
or that is in the earth beneath, nothing from the land, or that is in the water under the earth. He's kind of covering everything. Anything that is in existence, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third to, of the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, what God is trying to say to them at the first part of this passage in verse 4 is that he is transcendent. When we understand that he's transcendent, then we get that no image is able to contain who he is. There is no way for me as a human being to create any kind of an image that would help me represent God because he is just way beyond my capability of doing that. So he's saying, don't take the things I've created, like the universe and the stars and the planets. Don't take the things I've created on the earth. Don't take the things I've created in the sea and try to represent me by those. I've created those so you can see my power and my greatness, but I am way beyond that. And he's saying, certainly don't take images of my creation and try to make those into things of worship. And then he's also kind of saying, and don't think that you can create something in your brain that will, that, that will adequately represent me. But we can see his design and we can see his power, but we can't take those things, we can't take the earthly things and try to put them into some fashion in which I can say, I have a representation of who God is by making an image or by designing something in my own brain. He's saying, just accept that I'm far beyond that. And he says, and, and what he's saying to Israel is, if, if you make carved images, you're not accepting that I'm transcendent and beyond what you can think. And then he said, and, and if you don't follow these things, there's going to be implications for generations that, to come. And the beauty is, when he says... Look what he says in verse 5. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, but he blesses those for thousands of generations. So there's a limit to, to what he does for those who don't follow him, but the point he's trying to make simply here is that if you're going to make graven images and you're going to turn away from me, that's going to have impact on generations to follow. I just want to challenge you and encourage you this morning that your life matters that your life impacts generations to come. It's hard for us to think that sometimes, especially if, if you don't have kids right now. Hard for you to think that you're going to impact generations to come, but you will impact generations to come, even how you live your life, whether you have children or not. But then he tells us that there's the opposite side, that for thousands of generations you can have impact if you devote yourself to following God in the fashion that he says he should be followed. I get to, I'm a recipient of that in my own family's journey. There's one branch in my family that goes way, 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 way back of followers of Jesus. And so that blessing of one follower of Jesus passing it on to the next generation and passing it on to the next generation and so forth and so on, I'm part of that and some of you are part of that. But even if you haven't had that, you get the chance now to be those who pass this on. This obedience gets passed on from generation to generation. This understanding of who God is, this proclamation of the gospel of Christ gets passed on from generation to generation. And 
God is saying to the Israelites, you can have great impact, not just in the people of Israel, but in the whole world, if you follow the way that I've put before you. And one of the things I'm telling you is that I am transcendent, and you cannot, you cannot make images or try to conceptualize me in a way that fits your brain. Some of it you have to accept who I am. And because I'm the only God, and because I'm transcendent and, and I'm hard to, to comprehend, then he tells us in verse 7, don't take my name in vain. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. He's reminding us and inviting us to something positive, right? He's saying, listen, I'm inviting you to have a relationship with me, Israel. And now, thinking into the New Testament, Christian, I am, there's no other God, so don't put any before me. I'm transcendent, so don't try to imagine me in some human way. And because of all that, I, you should be respectful of who I am. And see my name as holy, and that I'm set apart. And he expects us to acknowledge all of that by handling his image and now his name in verse 7 carefully. Not to use it flippantly or in a profane way. But he's also telling us that we should never attribute things to God that God never said. Using his name in vain is not just using it improperly or using it in a cursed kind of way. That is in vain. But it's sometimes in vain when I say God said this when God didn't say this. So as a preacher, I have to be really, really careful that I don't take the Lord's name in vain by preaching his word in a way that's not true. It's not accurate. It's not correct. That's a scary thing. So because it's a scary thing, a little side note, I'm going to invite you to pray for me. Pray for me every Saturday. Pray that I'll handle his word well. But quite frankly, I have to answer to him for that. And so I covet your prayers in that. Because this is a serious thing, and he's saying, don't take my name lightly, don't use it flippantly, don't use it improperly, don't attribute things to my name that I never said. And then even in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, don't use it in an oath and be careful with making oaths, you should just be a person of the truth, so I shouldn't have to use God's name to like emphasize something, like I swear on God's name, or I swear by Jesus, or I swear by God that this is the truth. I shouldn't have to do any of that, because I should just be a person of the truth. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 about this. So he gives us a picture of who he is, and he wants his people to know that he's the only God. He wants his people to know that I'm transcendent. You can't try to imagine me or put me into a human box and think of me in human terms. And then he says, I, I want you to respect my name and to be careful with my name and to understand that I, my name is holy and, and it matters how you use it. And then he tells us one more way that he wants us to relate to him. So these first four commandments about our, how we're supposed to relate to him. And remember, if Israel follows these, they're going to bless themselves and the whole world. And the, the, the last way he says to relate to me is in verse 8. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six, day, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. You know, God designed you to rest. God designed you to take time to rest. 
Now, some of you go, yeah, I, I know that, because <laughs> you like to rest a lot. But you know what? Most of us, we get going with life, and we don't realize that God's designed us to take time to rest. I want you to see the positive. God is saying, at least when I grew up, sometimes the Sabbath was being used as God was saying, oh, you can't do anything. But what God is saying is that, hey, I've created this for you. I've created this great gift for you. In fact, Mark chapter 2, this is what Jesus says. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The, the Sabbath is a gift from God to us where God said, I want to remind you that you are not me and you need to rest. You know why you have to sleep? You have to sleep because God wants to remind you you're not God. <laughs> Only God doesn't have to sleep. By the way, anybody ever work with somebody like this? I used to have a coworker. I only need about three hours of sleep a night. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't have to work with you. <laughs> you know, you're not that easy to work with. We think that we can do all these things with our bodies, and, but God designed us. And, and he said, you know what? You have to sleep because you need to get regenerated. You have to take a time of rest. In fact, I want you to take one time every week of real rest because I've designed you that way. I have to confess that back in the day, I wasn't always so good at this. My early days of ministry, my wife can attest to this, I was known, sometimes I would kind of pride myself almost arrogantly with how many times I could work 30 days in a row without taking a break. Because I had so many things to do and working all the time. But you know what happened? It takes a toll on your body, right? It takes a toll on you. God doesn't design us that way. So I had some health issues in those days. Thinking that I was doing God's work, just going to keep going, keep going, keep going. But God made it pretty clear what his intention was, was for us to rest. And so God is saying, this isn't a commandment like to take something from you. And that's sometimes how we see the commandments, we're taking something. I'm giving you something. I'm giving you the permission to rest. I'm giving you the, the picture that I want you to have some time where you can worship and experience something that's transcendent and beyond you, that you were designed to have moments like this where you could gather with other people and you could worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the, the mysterious transcendent God who also came in the flesh and made himself known to us, and we can gather and worship him and hear the preaching of the word and spend time fellowshipping with one another. That was his design. It's a gift to us. And so he's saying, Israel... How you're going to be blessed and how you're going to bless the nations is if you take some time to rest and you take some time to focus on me and you take some time to worship and you take some time to reflect and you take some time to, in our context now, because we have the word, we have some time to gather to preach the word and hear the teaching of the word. You see, Israel is going to be God's chosen people. And if they're to bless the world, they're supposed to know how to interact with God properly. And in the Ten Commandments, we see the beginning of that picture of how they're supposed to relate to God. And if they're to bless the world, then the next commandments we're going to look at are going to show us how they're supposed to interact with the world. So not only was I supposed to interact with God in a certain way, God tells us, this is my heart for how people should interact with one another. And they're also based on God's heart of how he sees these things and how he sees how he created us. And the first thing he tells us is that we're to honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
he, he's t- giving us a picture that his design and the way the world will be blessed when there are healthy relationships within the family units. That families are places that God has designed and that they're supposed to be honor and respect. And there'll be other passages that talk about parents and how they're supposed to relate to their kids. But he's saying that this is his design. Not that it's a burden to honor your father and mother, but that this is the gift that he's given us, that we can have a good relationship with our families and work things through. God is the God who created the family and it's design and apparently he values it really highly because he puts it in one of his commandments and he's telling us this is what's important. This is how you relate to one another, that there are families that people honor one another and we honor our parents. Now there's two sides of this spectrum, right? And particularly for those of you who are college students today, it can be a challenge sometimes, right? I worked at a Christian college for 20 years. I'd have a lot of people come into my office and, and say, I'm trying to honor my mom and dad, but I feel God calling me to do this. God wants me to go on a spring break missions trip, but my mom and dad are saying no. God is calling me to go into the ministry, but my mom and dad are saying no. What, what do I do when I'm trying to honor my parents when they might be telling me no to something I think God's calling me to do? Now, I'm not going to answer that today. I'm just going to invite you, though, to be a part of that discussion, and I'd love to talk with you about that or maybe other people around you that you know to talk that through, because it's a challenge and every situation is different. But how do I honor my parents at different stages of life? If you're a kid or a teenager, how are you supposed to honor your mom and dad when you're under their authority still? But when you're going through that transition of moving out from under their authority and under their oversight, how do you then honor them when maybe you feel like you need to make some decisions that they disagree with? These are hard things. The other side of it is a beautiful place of honoring your parents. I'm kind of going through this right now with my dad being 92 years old in a dementia unit and my mom having passed away. I'm watching my family, the other side of this, honoring their parents as they reach the end of their journey. See, this is another thing God is trying to say, not only for children to honor their parents when they're kids, but how do we honor our parents as our life goes on at different stages of life? And it's a beautiful picture because what God is saying is when we do that, we're an example to the nations. And Israel was supposed to be an example to the world by how they did this. And so as kids were trying to honor their parents and be obedient to them, as people were going through the transitions of moving into their own families and still trying to honor their parents, and as parents got old and we're supposed to come alongside and not discard them, but to come alongside and do all we can to help them finish their journey well, He's saying, this is a blessing. This is a great thing for the world if my people do this. So what we're seeing is God's heart for the family, and we're seeing that this is the way, one of the ways we can bless the world. Now, obviously, there are times when you have strained relationships with your parents, and some of you might have that today. And I get that, and what we want to do is keep running everything through the scriptures, and how do I do my part in that strained relationship? And so, again, I just want to invite you to have those discussions with people that you respect and that care about you, that can help you navigate some of that. But God is clearly saying here that family is a big part of how the world will be blessed through his people doing it his way and honoring parents and and dealing with all that through all the stages of our journey is important. Then he tells us another thing that he values. He says, you shall not murder. 
You shall not, but what he's really saying is life has value. God created human beings in his image. He values human beings above all the creatures. And again, I just want to emphasize that today because we live in a world where I'm a pet guy, pets are important, but here's the thing. God created human beings in his image. That's the only thing he created in his image. And because of that, we have the greatest value of all of his creation. There is nothing in creation that is higher than the value of human life and human beings. So God created human beings in his image, and he values that. So he's saying, you just can't go and kill another image bearer of mine. Because he values human beings, he's saying, you can't take another's life just to take another's life. Can you imagine a world where no murder occurred? That's his design. Thou shalt not murder. Is that a heavy burden? No, the point of it is saying God designed the world to not have murder in it. And what a beautiful place it would be if it didn't happen. And he's saying, my people cannot tolerate that because that's not the way I've designed the world to be. And so if they're going to be impacting the nations, then they need to value life the way that God values life. And then it appears that God values marriage very highly because in verse 14 he says, you shall not commit adultery. In Genesis chapter 2 he says, two become one flesh. So when that one flesh, when one of the parties goes and commits adultery, it rips that apart. And God designed marriage in such a way that he even is going to use it as an example in the New Testament about how Jesus and the church are related and connected. They are so one that they can't be separated. And so he says adultery is a, is a serious issue. So he has great concern that that unity not be violated so much so that he puts it in the commandment. Now again, this isn't a, a burden. You shall not commit adultery. It's a great positive. Any married person will tell you that they are grateful that their partner is following this commandment, right? And so don't see it as something that God is prohibiting. This is something that God is blessing us with, saying this is how marriage should be. A united, a two becoming one, and they're united, and that shouldn't ever be ripped apart. And so he says, you shall not commit adultery. Then he tells us in verse 15, you shall not steal. God created us in a way that we have a desire, and, and, and he's put this in us to, to have possession and to earn and to have some possessions. Now, we want to use those possessions for his glory. We, we want to use them for the good of others. But it is still something that God has given us the ability to have stuff that this is mine, and you shouldn't come and just take it. You could come and ask me to use it, but to come and take it, it shows us that God's design God has a design that he values that you and I can have possessions and things that matter to us. Again, we're supposed to use it for his glory, but you just can't come and take it from one another. Can you imagine a world where no one stole anything? I'm going to say it to you students again. Could you imagine a world where you could leave your laptop sitting out in a public place at your university and walk away from it for two days and come back to it and still be there, Right? Well, that's just not from a university. Let's take that out to the coffee shops that I go to. Sit it there for two days and have it still be there. Can you imagine a world like that? That was God's design. It was his way. And so you and I should be people who don't steal. And then he says in verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, the character of God. Truthfulness matters. 
It matters that we tell the truth. It matters that we don't lie about our neighbor. It matters that we don't bear a false witness that could get our neighbor into some sort of trouble. This is how God designed it. This is what he wanted his people to be living out. And he said that would bless the nations. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his servants, his ox, his donkeys, anything that is your neighbor's. Partly again, there's the negative. Here's the positive. God wants you and I to be satisfied and content with what he's provided for us. The reason I envy and covet because I want something I don't have. And he wants us to be thankful and grateful for what he has provided, to be satisfied and content, not wanting what others have. Because when we get to that place of coveting and jealousy, it will lead us to anger and lead us to jealousy and lead us to places of discontentment. And it just creates a mess, not just for what's going on in my heart, but how I relate to you. Instead of rejoicing when you succeed, instead of rejoicing when something great happens in your life, that's what I should be doing. But if I am in a place of coveting and envy, I'm not rejoicing when something great happens to you. I'm going, well, why didn't that happen to me? <laughs> One of my favorite stories, again, students, you might relate to this. I used to hear that story of somebody who got $100 in the mail, right? 20 bucks in the mail. You know those stories? When I was in college, that never happened to me once. <laughs> not once. And I get somebody to go, I just got $200 anonymously from somebody in the mail. I'd be like, great, I just found on the job board that there's a place I could work for for a week over spring break and make 200 bucks, <laughs> you know? I'm like, I guess I'm supposed to be excited that I can work for it, but I kind of would have liked it in the mail, right? We do that. We see somebody blessed, and instead of going, that's awesome that they're blessed, we think, well, why couldn't I have had that blessing? God says, that's not the way I want my people to be. I want us to rejoice when people are having great things happen. This should be a place that we should be able to come into and say, I had this really awesome thing happen, and we should all go, that is awesome, praise God. And we should be able to do that on a regular basis. Now, what happens at the end of the passage is with all this going on, the mountain is flaming, and there's flashes of lightning, and there's trumpet sounds, and it's great because the people said, okay, we don't want to talk to God. He's scary. He's big. They said, Moses, you go talk to him. They're kind of throwing Moses under the bus. <laughs> Moses, you go. God, God, God's good with you. You go. Actually, one of the great things of this passage, we see a little picture of what's going to happen in the New Testament when Jesus will go and intercede for us so that now we can come boldly into God's presence. But right now, the people are afraid. And Moses says, don't be afraid. God is testing you that the fear of him may be before you, that you might see him and, and be awed by him and respect him. And that might help you to not sin. The holiness and the majesty and the power and the awe of God was on display, and they were afraid. And Moses said, don't be afraid. Because this, this might be the motivation to help keep you from sinning. But here's the, here's the truth, guys. We know that it won't be enough. We know the rest of the story because we have the rest of the Bible. And we know that they will sin. We know that they will break these commandments. And to make it even harder, Jesus in the New Testament says the commandments are more than just outward actions. It's what you think in the heart. So it's not just, did you not kill anybody, but if you're angry with your brother, it's the same thing. He says, not only that you didn't have commit adultery, but you lusted after somebody. So all of a sudden, everybody's guilty. Nobody can do it. 
Nobody can keep these commandments. And this is where Jesus comes into the picture. This is where Jesus is in Exodus. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. In the commandments, we see what it means to love God and our neighbor. It tells us what that looks like. First four, loving God. Last six, loving our neighbor. But the issue is, it can only happen if I have a transformed heart. That can't happen if I grit my teeth and try harder. The only way I can keep the first four, my relationship with God right, and the last six, my relationships with you right, is if I have the transformation of the spirit of the living God. And the law will show us our heart and what good life looks like, but it falls short in helping us to be able to keep it. And since I break it both in action and in heart, I need something greater And Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, he fulfills the law. He comes and lives it perfectly. And because he lives it perfectly and dies on the cross, Galatians 2.16, Paul's able to say this, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, but because by the works of the law, no one will be justified can't be justified by trying to obey these commandments. Jesus obeyed them, and because of what he's done, I can be justified by faith, not by the works of the law. But the works of the law show me his character, show me his nature, show me that I fall short, show me that I need a savior. And here's the good news. Jesus, who fulfills the law, and then is the atoning sacrifice, will redeem us and justify us. And the atoning sacrifice is Leviticus, and that's next week. And when we get to that, we're going to see the price that Jesus paid so that we could be a people who are a blessing to the nations. The price that he would pay so that we could be a people that could rightly relate to him and rightly relate to one another. And that's all good news. So I hope that you take these commandments and see the other side, what God's trying to do in your life and my life so that we might be great worshipers and that we might be great people who love one another and care for one another and make a difference in a world that desperately needs us to put all this into practice for his glory and for the sake of his great name. I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads and take a moment to listen to what the Lord might be saying to you, and then we're going to transition into a time of response. So take a moment of quiet prayer.